How y'all doing there? Sure like to thank y'all for stopping by for another episode of this Removing the Illusion podcast. Man, let me tell y'all. Now y'all know before we get to talk about what I'm going to talk about, we don't got to tell y'all what I'm smoking on tonight. And tonight, I'm smoking on an 888 Illusion. Man, let me tell you something here. This is a fantastic stick here. Now I had one of these sticks probably about... Oh, I would say probably about two years ago when I first had my first one. And let me tell you something. I got a headache off this thing because I wasn't, I wasn't good. I wasn't good at, uh, at, at picking out cigars. I ain't know nothing about cigars. And, and uh, one, one of the guys, when I just met them fellas, gave me one of these 88. We got one fella, but the cigar spot, Tim. This pretty much all Tim smoked. Every time you see Tim, he got an 888 every hour of the day. I think he eat them things the way he smokes them, but he just love them. Another, another, another cigar agenda up there, he loved the 8882. So I got one here tonight I'm smoking on, and let me tell you something. This is a fantastic stick, I'm telling y'all. A 888 Illusion. If you take a look at my website, you can take a look at what I'm smoking here tonight. Man, this is a good stick, man. This thing here is, 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 is origin is, is from Nicaragua. The format is a Churchill. The size I got here is a 6x34x48. The wrapper is Nicaraguan. The filler is Nicaraguan. The binder is Nicaraguan. Nicaraguan. This is a handmade stick. That's like I tell y'all, I only like handmade sticks. I don't like them sticks that are made on no machines. That just don't seem right to me. Plus, they put a lot of stuff in that stuff. Fillers and additives and stuff like that. Chemicals in there. Just my opinion. I like my stuff handmade and natural. Now this stick right here is going to run you around about $9. And that is an excellent price point for a stick like this. Like I say, some people that go in there and they be spending all that money, $14, $15, $20, like the cigar that I just spoke. You know, that uh, St. Cristobal. That St. Cristobal is an excellent stick. But that's not a stick that I'm going to smoke every day. You see what I'm saying? That's a special case of stick. But this Illusiana 888. This is a good stick that you can have pretty much every day whenever you feel like one good stick. Like I say, Tim up there, he smokes them every day. Now, just tell y'all a little bit about this stick here. You know, the flavor of this thing here. This thing is a, this is definitely a full-body cigar, okay? And it's just as you would expect it from a creamy milk chocolate appearance of the wrapper. This cigar delivers a creamy chocolate-flavored experience. Cocoa and creamy mushroom undertones are the most prominent notes throughout this stick. Man, let me tell you, this thing is so good. The initial flavors also have a touch of leather and earth. Now, that's always throws me up when they start talking stuff like that, leather and earth. You know, especially earth. What is earth? What kind of note or taste is earth? See, they, they, sometimes they mix a whole lot of stuff in there. But the cigar is an excellent cigar. Now, there is a bit of spice, but it remains in the backdrop. The creamy notes become more prominent during the middle third. And in the final third, the spices finally moved to the foreground. While the flavors transition a good deal from start to finish, the overall elements are very consistent and well-balanced. Body is definitely full of flavor, like I told y'all. This is an excellent stick. See, when they get talking about all that earthly and all them notes like that, man, that go away over my head. But I'm telling y'all something, you can taste, like I say, whenever I hit a stick and I, and, I, and I feel them notes and the flavor get into my lips, right there in my lips, right in my lips, I can taste some notes and flavor. I know it's going to be a good stick. Uh, I just know it's going to be a good stick. And that's right. What when I when I first lit up this 888, I fired it up. Man, it just it came like right into my lips. Like I say, two years ago, I wasn't you know I ain't know what I was doing about these cigars. I ain't have no palate. I ain't have no tolerance for no full body. I was only you know maybe smoking a mild or something like that. You know, then I kind of grew up to medium a little bit. So now I'm up to a full body and I can have this 888 and I can really appreciate it now. This is a good stick. Like I told y'all, the price point is around about $9. Go take a look at my website. Take a look at my website and you can see what this 888 look like. This is a good stick here. Now tonight, the podcast is probably going to be, pod talk rather, it's probably going to be a little long. It's gonna, probably going to be about two episodes because we're going to talk about Sigmund Freud here. Or, well, or we're going to take a look at Sigmund Freud and not talk about we're going to take a look at Sigmund Freud. Now, I probably ain't got too much to say because I'm going to sit back here and I'm going to listen to this Sigmund Freud thing here. I'm going to smoke on my stick with y'all. Sigmund Freud kind of fascinated me. He really fascinated me. Because I've always been fascinated by, you know, neurologics, neurologics, well, you know, neurologic or neurologics. 
Y'all know I got Louisiana education. You know how you how you how your neural system work, how your thinking work. You know, he, you know, he's also was the first one that came up with this psychoanalyst. You know how to analyze somebody. You know their brain. I don't know about all this stuff here, but I know when I listened to this thing here on on Sigmund Freud, and when I heard about it, he just seemed like one fascinated person to me. Somebody to sit down and observe human behavior and create all these. Neurolo- neurological words and psychiatry and all this psychoanalytic, all this stuff. It's just fascinating to me. Now, a lot of times, now I'm the type of person, a lot of times I listen to stuff and I learn stuff, but I can't regurgitate it, you know, intelligently, articulate like some folks. But I can learn something and I can apply it. Now, regurgitating it, I probably can't always do that the right way, but I can apply it. And what fascinated me, what brought me to Sigma Freud is the next episode that I got on the background, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna take a look at a gentleman by the name of uh Edward Bernay and Ivan Lee. You know, these guys were like the father of propaganda and how to influence people, you know, how to use propaganda, how to use the media, how to, you know, how to how to sway public opinion, you know, and that's what led me to Sigmund Freud because I've come to find out that Edward Bernay, um, yeah, Edward Bernay is Sigmund Freud's nephew. So it was it's only fitting that a guy who 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 was the master of propaganda and 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 uh, and, and 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 how to sway people is only is only logical that his uncle would be Sigmund Freud because Sigmund Freud knew learned how the mind works. You know, man, hey, look, before I get off in this thing, I'm going to kick back here with this 888, this illusion. Take a look at my website. And I want y'all, let's take a look at Sigmund Freud. Because I want, because this, 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 is, this is a very fascinating and interesting man. It tells you, it tells you how this man studied the mind. And then we're going to go off, we're going to, then on the next episode, we're going to get off in Edward Bernay and show you how Edward Bernay, his nephew, how he used what his uncle learned about the human mind and the neuropathogen and, 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 uh, and the psychosomosis of a person, how he used that to commercialize it, to sway people to buy things and governments to do things. I can't get off into all anything and everything in Edward Bernay right now. But Edward Bernay is the reason what brought me to Sigmund Ford and also Ivy Lee. I believe was very instrumental in early businesses in making America during the American during the Industrial Revolution. How Ivy Lee influences business, how a lot of things that he implemented back then are still implemented today on how business and processes work. All these people study Sigmund Freud. Fascinating guy. Really fascinating. So okay, so what I'm gonna do right now, I'm gonna kick back here with my 888 illusion. I'm gonna puff on this little thing here, and we're gonna get off into the Sigmund Freud. And then I'm going to come back and get you with y'all on the flip side, all right? All right now. Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud, German, born Sigismund Schlomo Freud, May 6, 1856 to September 23, 1939, was an Austrian neurologist and the founder of psychoanalysis, a clinical method for treating psychopathology through dialogue between a patient and a psychoanalyst. Freud was born to Galician Jewish parents in the Moravian town of Freiburg, in the Austrian Empire. He qualified as a doctor of medicine in 1881 at the University of Vienna. Upon completing his habilitation in 1885, he was appointed a docent in neuropathology and became an affiliated professor in 1902. Freud lived and worked in Vienna, having set up his clinical practice there in 1886. In 1938, Freud left Austria to escape the Nazis. He died in exile in the United Kingdom in 1939. In founding psychoanalysis, Freud developed therapeutic techniques such as the use of free association and discovered transference, establishing its central role in the analytic process. Freud's redefinition of sexuality to include its infantile forms led him to formulate the Oedipus complex as the central tenet of psychoanalytical theory. His analysis of dreams as wish fulfillments provided him with models for the clinical analysis of symptom formation and the underlying mechanisms of repression. On this basis Freud elaborated his theory of the unconscious and went on to develop a model of psychic structure comprising id, ego, and superego. Freud postulated the existence of libido, a sexualized energy with which mental processes and structures are invested and which generates erotic attachments, and a death drive, the source of compulsive repetition, hate, aggression and neurotic guilt. In his later works, Freud developed a wide-ranging interpretation and critique of religion and culture. Though in overall decline as a diagnostic and clinical practice, psychoanalysis remains influential within psychology, psychiatry, and psychotherapy, 
and across the humanities. It thus continues to generate extensive and highly contested debate with regard to its therapeutic efficacy, its scientific status, and whether it advances or is detrimental to the feminist cause. Nonetheless, Freud's work has suffused contemporary Western thought and popular culture. W. H. Auden's 1940 poetic tribute to Freud describes him as having created a whole climate of opinion under whom we conduct our different lives. Biography Early Life and Education Freud's birthplace, a rented room in a locksmith's house, Freiburg, Austrian Empire, later P. Ibor, Czech Republic. Freud was born to Jewish parents in the Moravian town of Freiburg, in the Austrian Empire, later P. Ibor, Czech Republic, the first of eight children. Both of his parents were from Galicia, a province straddling modern-day West Ukraine and Poland. His father, Jacob Freud, 1815-1896, a wool merchant, had two sons, Emmanuel, 1833-1914, and Philip, 1836-1911, by his first marriage. Jacob's family were Hasidic Jews, and although Jacob himself had moved away from the tradition, he came to be known for his Torah study. He and Freud's mother, Amalia Nathanson, who was 20 years younger and his third wife, were married by Rabbi Isaac Noah Mannheimer on July 29, 1855. They were struggling financially and living in a rented room, in a locksmith's house at Schlossergus 117 when their son Sigmund was born. He was born with a call, which his mother saw as a positive omen for the boy's future. In 1859, the Freud family left Freiburg. Freud's half-brothers emigrated to Manchester, England, parting him from the inseparable playmate of his early childhood, Emmanuel's son, John. Jacob Freud took his wife and two children, Freud's sister, Anna, was born in 1858, a brother, Julius born in 1857, had died in infancy, firstly to Leipzig and then in 1860 to Vienna where four sisters and a brother were born, Rosa, B1860, Marie, B1861, Adolphine, B1862, Paula, B1864, Alexander, B1866. In 1865, the nine-year-old Freud entered the Leopold Stadter Communal Real Gymnasium, a prominent high school. He proved to be an outstanding pupil and graduated from the Matura in 1873 with honors. He loved literature and was proficient in German, French, Italian, Spanish, English, Hebrew, Latin and Greek. Freud entered the University of Vienna at age 17. He had planned to study law, but joined the medical faculty at the university, where his studies included philosophy under Franz Brentano, physiology under Ernst Bruck, and zoology under Darwinist professor Karl Claus. In 1876, Freud spent four weeks at Claus's zoological research station in Trieste, dissecting hundreds of eels in an inconclusive search for their male reproductive organs. In 1877 Freud moved to Ernst Bruck's physiology laboratory where he spent six years comparing the brains of humans and other vertebrates with those of frogs and invertebrates such as crayfish and lampreys. His research work on the biology of nervous tissue proved seminal for the subsequent discovery of the neuron in the 1890s. Freud's research work was interrupted in 1879 by the obligation to undertake a year's compulsory military service. The lengthy downtimes enabled him to complete a commission to translate four essays from John Stuart Mill's collected works. He graduated with an M.D. in March 1881. Early Career and Marriage In 1882, Freud began his medical career at the Vienna General Hospital. His research work in cerebral anatomy led to the publication of an influential paper on the palliative effects of cocaine in 1884 and his work on aphasia would form the basis of his first book on the aphasias, a critical study, published in 1891. Over a three-year period, Freud worked in various departments of the hospital. His time spent in Theodore Maynard's psychiatric clinic and as a locum in a local asylum led to an increased interest in clinical work. His substantial body of published research led to his appointment as a university lecturer or docent in neuropathology in 1885, a non-salaried post but one which entitled him to give lectures at the University of Vienna. In 1886, Freud resigned his hospital post and entered private practice specializing in nervous disorders. The same year he married Martha Bernays, the granddaughter of Isaac Bernays, a chief rabbi in Hamburg. They had six children, Mathilde, B1887, Jean Martin, B1889, Oliver, B1891, Ernst, B1892, Sophie, 
B1893, and Anna, B1895. From 1891 until they left Vienna in 1938, Freud and his family lived in an apartment at Burgas 19, near Innerestadt, a historical district of Vienna. In 1896, Minna Bernays, Martha Freud's sister, became a permanent member of the Freud household after the death of her fiancé. The close relationship she formed with Freud led to rumors, started by Carl Jung, of an affair. The discovery of a Swiss hotel log of August 13, 1898, signed by Freud whilst traveling with his sister-in-law, has been presented as evidence of the affair. Freud began smoking tobacco at age 24, initially a cigarette smoker, he became a cigar smoker. He believed smoking enhanced his capacity to work and that he could exercise self-control in moderating it. Despite health warnings from colleague Wilhelm Flyus, he remained a smoker, eventually suffering a buccal cancer. Freud suggested to Flyus in 1897 that addictions, including that to tobacco, were substitutes for masturbation, the one great habit. Freud had greatly admired his philosophy tutor, Brentano, who was known for his theories of perception and introspection. Brentano discussed the possible existence of the unconscious mind in his psychology from an empirical standpoint, 1874. Although Brentano denied its existence, his discussion of the unconscious probably helped introduce Freud to the concept. Freud owned and made use of Charles Darwin's major evolutionary writings, and was also influenced by Edward von Hartmann's The Philosophy of the Unconscious, 1869. Other texts of importance to Freud were by Fechner and Herbart with the latter's psychology as science arguably considered to be of underrated significance in this respect. Freud also drew on the work of Theodore Lips who was one of the main contemporary theorists of the concepts of the unconscious and empathy. Though Freud was reluctant to associate his psychoanalytic insights with prior philosophical theories, attention has been drawn to analogies between his work and that of both Skopenhauer 32 and Nietzsche, both of whom he claimed not to have read until late in life. One historian concluded, based on Freud's correspondence with his adolescent friend Edward Silberstein, that Freud read Nietzsche's The Birth of Tragedy and the first two of the untimely meditations when he was 17. In 1900, the year of Nietzsche's death, Freud bought his collected works, he told his friend, Flyus, that he hoped to find in Nietzsche's works the words for much that remains mute in me. Later, he said he had not yet opened them. Freud came to treat Nietzsche's writings as texts to be resisted far more than to be studied. His interest in philosophy declined after he had decided on a career in neurology. Freud read William Shakespeare in English throughout his life, and it has been suggested that his understanding of human psychology may have been partially derived from Shakespeare's plays. Freud's Jewish origins and his allegiance to his secular Jewish identity were of significant influence in the formation of his intellectual and moral outlook, especially with respect to his intellectual nonconformism, as he was the first to point out in his autobiographical study. They would also have a substantial effect on the content of psychoanalytic ideas, particularly in respect of their common concerns with depth interpretation and the bounding of desire by law. Development of Psychoanalysis Andre Broerlitz a clinical lesson at the Salpetriera, 1887, depicting a Charcot demonstration. Freud had a lithograph of this painting placed over the couch in his consulting rooms. In October 1885, Freud went to Paris on a three-month fellowship to study with Jean-Martin Charcot, a renowned neurologist who was conducting scientific research into hypnosis. He was later to recall the experience of the stay as catalytic in turning him toward the practice of medical psychopathology and away from a less financially promising career in neurology research. Charcot specialized in the study of hysteria and susceptibility to hypnosis, which he frequently demonstrated with patients on stage in front of an audience. Once he had set up in private practice back in Vienna in 1886, Freud began using hypnosis in his clinical work. He adopted the approach of his friend and collaborator, Joseph Brewer, in a type of hypnosis which was different from the French methods he had studied, in that it did not use suggestion. The treatment of one particular patient of Brewer's proved to be transformative for Freud's clinical practice. Described as Anna O, she was invited to talk about her symptoms while under hypnosis, she would coin the phrase talking cure for her treatment. In the course of talking in this way, her symptoms became reduced in severity as she retrieved memories of traumatic incidents associated with their onset. The inconsistent results of Freud's early clinical work eventually led him to abandon hypnosis, having concluded that more consistent and effective symptom relief could be achieved by encouraging patients to talk freely, without censorship or inhibition, about whatever ideas or memories occurred to them. 
In conjunction with this procedure, which he called free association, Freud found that patients' dreams could be fruitfully analyzed to reveal the complex structuring of unconscious material and to demonstrate the psychic action of repression which, he had concluded, underlay symptom formation. By 1896 he was using the term psychoanalysis to refer to his new clinical method and the theories on which it was based. Approach to Freud's consulting rooms at Burgas 19. Freud's development of these new theories took place during a period in which he experienced heart irregularities, disturbing dreams, and periods of depression, a neurasthenia which he linked to the death of his father in 1896 and which prompted a self-analysis of his own dreams and memories of childhood. His explorations of his feelings of hostility to his father and rival Rouse jealousy over his mother's affections led him to fundamentally revise his theory of the origin of the neuroses. On the basis of his early clinical work, Freud had postulated that unconscious memories of sexual molestation in early childhood were a necessary precondition for the psychoneuroses, hysteria and obsessional neurosis, a formulation now known as Freud's seduction theory 43 in the light of his self-analysis, Freud abandoned the theory that every neurosis can be traced back to the effects of infantile sexual abuse, now arguing that infantile sexual scenarios still had a causative function, but it did not matter whether they were real or imagined and that in either case they became pathogenic only when acting as repressed memories. This transition from the theory of infantile sexual trauma as a general explanation of how all neuroses originate to one that presupposes an autonomous infantile sexuality provided the basis for Freud's subsequent formulation of the theory of the Oedipus complex. Freud described the evolution of his clinical method and set out his theory of the psychogenetic origins of hysteria, demonstrated in a number of case histories, in studies on hysteria published in 1895, co-authored with Joseph Brewer. In 1899 he published The Interpretation of Dreams in which, following a critical review of existing theory, Freud gives detailed interpretations of his own and his patients' dreams in terms of wish fulfillments made subject to the repression and censorship of the dream work. He then sets out the theoretical model of mental structure, the unconscious, preconscious, and conscious, on which this account is based. An abridged version, on dreams, was published in 1901. In works which would win him a more general readership, Freud applied his theories outside the clinical setting in the psychopathology of everyday life, 1901, and jokes and their relation to the unconscious, 1905.46 In three essays on the theory of sexuality, published in 1905, Freud elaborates his theory of infantile sexuality, describing its polymorphous perverse forms and the functioning of the drives, to which it gives rise, in the formation of sexual identity. The same year he published fragment of an analysis of a case of hysteria, which became one of his more famous and controversial case studies. Relationship with Flyus During this formative period of his work, Freud valued and came to rely on the intellectual and emotional support of his friend Wilhelm Flyus, a Berlin-based ear, nose, and throat specialist whom he had first met 1887. Both men saw themselves as isolated from the prevailing clinical and theoretical mainstream because of their ambitions to develop radical new theories of sexuality. Flyus developed highly eccentric theories of human biorhythms and a nasogenital connection which are today considered pseudoscientific. He shared Freud's views on the importance of certain aspects of sexuality masturbation, coitus interruptus, and the use of condoms in the etiology of what were then called the actual neuroses, primarily neurasthenia and certain physically manifested anxiety symptoms. They maintained an extensive correspondence from which Freud drew on Flyus's speculations on infantile sexuality and bisexuality to elaborate and revise his own ideas. His first attempt at a systematic theory of the mind, his project for a scientific psychology was developed as a metapsychology with Flyus as interlocutor however, Freud's efforts to build a bridge between neurology and psychology were eventually abandoned after they had reached an impasse, as his letters to Flyus reveal though some ideas of the project were to be taken up again in the concluding chapter of the interpretation of dreams. Freud had Flyus repeatedly operate on his nose and sinuses to treat nasal reflex neurosis, and subsequently referred his patient Emma Eckstein to him. According to Freud, her history of symptoms included severe leg pains with consequent restricted mobility, as well as stomach and menstrual pains. These pains were, according to Flyus's theories, caused by habitual masturbation which, as the tissue of the nose and genitalia were linked, was curable by removal of part of the middle turbinate. Flyus's surgery proved disastrous, resulting in profuse, recurrent nasal bleeding, he had left a half meter of gauze in Eckstein's nasal cavity, the subsequent removal of which left her permanently disfigured. At first, though aware of Flyus's culpability, Freud fled from the remedial surgery in horror, 
he could only bring himself to delicately intimate in his correspondence to Flyus the nature of his disastrous role and in subsequent letters maintained a tactful silence on the matter or else returned to the face-saving topic of Eckstein's hysteria. Freud ultimately, in light of Eckstein's history of adolescent self-cutting and irregular nasal, and menstrual, bleeding, concluded that Flyus was completely without blame, as Eckstein's post-operative hemorrhages were hysterical wish bleedings linked to an old wish to be loved in her illness and triggered as a means of rerusing Freud's affection. Eckstein nonetheless continued her analysis with Freud. She was restored to full mobility and went on to practice psychoanalysis herself. Freud, who had called Flyus the Kepler of biology, later concluded that a combination of a homoerotic attachment and the residue of his specifically Jewish mysticism lay behind his loyalty to his Jewish friend and his consequent overestimation of both his theoretical and clinical work. Their friendship came to an acrimonious end with Flyus angry at Freud's unwillingness to endorse his general theory of sexual periodicity and accusing him of collusion in the plagiarism of his work. After Flyus failed to respond to Freud's offer of collaboration over publication of his three essays on the theory of sexuality in 1906, their relationship came to an end. Early Followers In 1902, Freud at last realized his long-standing ambition to be made a university professor. The title Professor Extraordinarius was important to Freud for the recognition and prestige it conferred, there being no salary or teaching duties attached to the post, he would be granted the enhanced status of Professor Ordinarius in 1920. Despite support from the university, his appointment had been blocked in successive years by the political authorities and it was secured only with the intervention of one of his more influential ex-patients, a Baroness Marie Furstel, who, supposedly, had to bribe the Minister of Education with a valuable painting. With his prestige thus enhanced, Freud continued with the regular series of lectures on his work which, since the mid-1880s as a docent of Vienna University, he had been delivering to small audiences every Saturday evening at the lecture hall of the university's psychiatric clinic. From the autumn of 1902, a number of Viennese physicians who had expressed interest in Freud's work were invited to meet at his apartment every Wednesday afternoon to discuss issues relating to psychology and neuropathology. This group was called the Wednesday Psychological Society, Psychologisch Mitwachsgesellschaft, and it marked the beginnings of the worldwide psychoanalytic movement. Freud founded this discussion group at the suggestion of the physician Wilhelm Stiekel. Stiekel had studied medicine at the University of Vienna under Richard von Kraft Ebing. His conversion to psychoanalysis is variously attributed to his successful treatment by Freud for a sexual problem or as a result of his reading The Interpretation of Dreams, to which he subsequently gave a positive review in the Viennese daily newspaper Neues Wiener Tagblatt. The other three original members whom Freud invited to attend, Alfred Adler, Max Cahane, and Rudolf Reitler, were also physicians and all five were Jewish by birth. Both Cahane and Reitler were childhood friends of Freud. Cahane had attended the same secondary school and both he and Reitler went to university with Freud. They had kept abreast of Freud's developing ideas through their attendance at his Saturday evening lectures. In 1901, Cahane, who first introduced Stiekel to Freud's work, had opened an outpatient psychotherapy institute of which he was the director in Bauernmart, in Vienna. In the same year, his medical textbook, Outline of Internal Medicine for Students and Practicing Physicians, was published. In it, he provided an outline of Freud's psychoanalytic method. Cahane broke with Freud and left the Wednesday Psychological Society in 1907 for unknown reasons and in 1923 committed suicide. Reitler was the director of an establishment providing thermal cures in Dorotier Gas which had been founded in 1901. He died prematurely in 1917. Adler, regarded as the most formidable intellect among the early Freud circle, was a socialist who in 1898 had written a health manual for the tailoring trade. He was particularly interested in the potential social impact of psychiatry. Max Graf, a Viennese musicologist and father of Little Hans, who had first encountered Freud in 1900 and joined the Wednesday group soon after its initial inception, described the ritual and atmosphere of the early meetings of the society. The gatherings followed a definite ritual. First one of the members would present a paper. Then, black coffee and cakes were served, cigar and cigarettes were on the table and were consumed in great quantities. After a social quarter of an hour, the discussion would begin. The last and decisive word was always spoken by Freud himself. There was the atmosphere of the foundation of a religion in that room. Freud himself was its new prophet who made the heretofore prevailing methods of psychological investigation appear superficial. By 1906, the group had grown to 16 members, including Otto Rank, who was employed as the group's paid secretary. 
In the same year, Freud began a correspondence with Carl Gustav Jung who was by then already an academically acclaimed researcher into word association and the galvanic skin response, and a lecturer at Zurich University, although still only an assistant to Eugen Bleuler at the Bergalsley Mental Hospital in Zurich. In March 1907, Jung and Ludwig Benzwanger, also a Swiss psychiatrist, traveled to Vienna to visit Freud and attend the discussion group. Thereafter, they established a small psychoanalytic group in Zurich. In 1908, reflecting its growing institutional status, the Wednesday group was reconstituted as the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society with Freud as president, a position he relinquished in 1910 in favor of Adler in the hope of neutralizing his increasingly critical standpoint. The first woman member, Marguerite Hilferting, joined the society in 1910 and the following year she was joined by Tatiana Rosenthal and Sabina Spilrain who were both Russian psychiatrists and graduates of the Zurich University Medical School. Prior to the completion of her studies, Spilrain had been a patient of Jung at the Bergalsley and the clinical and personal details of their relationship became the subject of an extensive correspondence between Freud and Jung. Both women would go on to make important contributions to the work of the Russian Psychoanalytic Society founded in 1910. Freud's early followers met together formally for the first time at the Hotel Bristol, Salzburg on April 27, 1908. This meeting, which was retrospectively deemed to be the first International Psychoanalytic Congress, was convened at the suggestion of Ernest Jones, then a London-based neurologist who had discovered Freud's writings and begun applying psychoanalytic methods in his clinical work. Jones had met Jung at a conference the previous year and they met up again in Zurich to organize the Congress. There were, as Jones records, 42 present, half of whom were or became practicing analysts. In addition to Jones and the Viennese and Zurich contingents accompanying Freud and Jung, also present and notable for their subsequent importance in the psychoanalytic movement were Karl Abraham and Max Eidengon from Berlin, Sandor Ferenczi from Budapest and the New York-based Abraham Brill. Important decisions were taken at the Congress with a view to advancing the impact of Freud's work. A journal, the Jarbuch für Psychoanalytisch und die Psychopathologische Forskungen, was launched in 1909 under the editorship of Jung. This was followed in 1910 by the monthly Zentralblatt für Psychoanalyse edited by Adler and Stiekel, in 1911 by Amago, a journal devoted to the application of psychoanalysis to the field of cultural and literary studies edited by Rank and in 1913 by the Internationale Zeitschrift für Psychoanalyse, also edited by Rank. Plans for an international association of psychoanalysts were put in place and these were implemented at the Nuremberg Congress of 1910 where Jung was elected, with Freud's support, as its first president. Freud turned to Brill and Jones to further his ambition to spread the psychoanalytic cause in the English-speaking world. Both were invited to Vienna following the Salzburg Congress and a division of labor was agreed with Brill given the translation rights for Freud's works, and Jones, who was to take up a post at the University of Toronto later in the year, tasked with establishing a platform for Freudian ideas in North American academic and medical life. Jones's advocacy prepared the way for Freud's visit to the United States, accompanied by Jung and Ferenczi, in September 1909 at the invitation of Stanley Hall, president of Clark University, Worcester, Massachusetts, where he gave five lectures on psychoanalysis. The event, at which Freud was awarded an honorary doctorate, marked the first public recognition of Freud's work and attracted widespread media interest. Freud's audience included the distinguished neurologist and psychiatrist James Jackson Putnam, professor of diseases of the nervous system at Harvard, who invited Freud to his country retreat where they held extensive discussions over a period of four days. Putnam's subsequent public endorsement of Freud's work represented a significant breakthrough for the psychoanalytic cause in the United States. When Putnam and Jones organized the founding of the American Psychoanalytic Association in May 1911 they were elected president and secretary respectively. Brill founded the New York Psychoanalytic Society the same year. His English translations of Freud's work began to appear from 1909. Resignations from the IPA some of Freud's followers subsequently withdrew from the International Psychoanalytical Association, IPA, and founded their own schools. From 1909, Adler's views on topics such as neurosis began to differ markedly from those held by Freud. As Adler's position appeared increasingly incompatible with Freudianism, a series of confrontations between their respective viewpoints took place at the meetings of the Viennese Psychoanalytic Society in January and February 1911. In February 1911, Adler, then the president of the society, resigned his position. At this time, Stiekel also resigned his position as vice president of the society. 
Adler finally left the Freudian group altogether in June 1911 to found his own organization with nine other members who had also resigned from the group. This new formation was initially called Society for Free Psychoanalysis but it was soon renamed the Society for Individual Psychology. In the period after World War I, Adler became increasingly associated with a psychological position he devised called individual psychology. In 1912, Jung published Wand Lungeon und die Symbolie der Libido, published in English in 1916 as Psychology of the Unconscious, making it clear that his views were taking a direction quite different from those of Freud. To distinguish his system from psychoanalysis, Jung called it analytical psychology. Anticipating the final breakdown of the relationship between Freud and Jung, Ernest Jones initiated the formation of a secret committee of loyalists charged with safeguarding the theoretical coherence and institutional legacy of the psychoanalytic movement. Formed in the autumn of 1912, the committee comprised Freud, Jones, Abraham, Ferenczi, Rank, and Hans Sachs. Max Eidengon joined the committee in 1919. Each member pledged himself not to make any public departure from the fundamental tenets of psychoanalytic theory before he had discussed his views with the others. After this development, Jung recognized that his position was untenable and resigned as editor of the Jarhabuch and then as president of the IPA in April 1914. The Zurich Society withdrew from the IPA the following July. Later the same year, Freud published a paper entitled The History of the Psychoanalytic Movement, the German original being first published in the Jarbuch, giving his view on the birth and evolution of the psychoanalytic movement and the withdrawal of Adler and Jung from it. The final defection from Freud's inner circle occurred following the publication in 1924 of Rank's The Trauma of Birth which other members of the committee read as, in effect, abandoning the Oedipus complex as the central tenet of psychoanalytic theory. Abraham and Jones became increasingly forceful critics of Rank and though he and Freud were reluctant to end their close and long-standing relationship the break finally came in 1926 when Rank resigned from his official posts in the IPA and left Vienna for Paris. His place on the committee was taken by Anna Freud 87 Rank eventually settled in the United States where his revisions of Freudian theory were to influence a new generation of therapists uncomfortable with the orthodoxies of the IPA. After the founding of the IPA in 1910, an international network of psychoanalytical societies, training institutes and clinics became well established and a regular schedule of biannual congresses commenced after the end of World War I to coordinate their activities. Abraham and Eidengon founded the Berlin Psychoanalytic Society in 1910 and then the Berlin Psychoanalytic Institute and the Polyclinic in 1920. The Polyclinic's innovations of free treatment, and child analysis and the Berlin Institute's standardization of psychoanalytic training had a major influence on the wider psychoanalytic movement. In 1927 Ernst Simmel founded the Schloss-Tagel Sanatorium on the outskirts of Berlin, the first such establishment to provide psychoanalytic treatment in an institutional framework. Freud organized a fund to help finance its activities and his architect's son, Ernst, was commissioned to refurbish the building. It was forced to close in 1931 for economic reasons. The 1910 Moscow Psychoanalytic Society became the Russian Psychoanalytic Society and Institute in 1922. Freud's Russian followers were the first to benefit from translations of his work, the 1904 Russian translation of the interpretation of dreams appearing nine years before Brill's English edition. The Russian Institute was unique in receiving state support for its activities, including publication of translations of Freud's works. Support was abruptly annulled in 1924, when Joseph Stalin came to power, after which psychoanalysis was denounced on ideological grounds. After helping found the American Psychoanalytic Association in 1911, Ernest Jones returned to Britain from Canada in 1913 and founded the London Psychoanalytic Society the same year. In 1919, he dissolved this organization and, with its core membership purged of Jungian adherents, founded the British Psychoanalytical Society, serving as its president until 1944. The Institute of Psychoanalysis was established 1924 and the London Clinic of Psychoanalysis established in 1926, both under Jones's directorship. The Vienna Ambulatorium, Clinic, was established in 1922 and the Vienna Psychoanalytic Institute was founded in 1924 under the directorship of Helene Deutsch. 93 Ferenczi founded the Budapest Psychoanalytic Institute in 1913 and a clinic in 1929. Psychoanalytic societies and institutes were established in Switzerland, 1919, France, 1926, Italy, 1932, the Netherlands, 1933, Norway, 1933, and in Palestine. Jerusalem, 1933, by Eidengon, who had fled Berlin after Adolf Hitler came to power. 
The New York Psychoanalytic Institute was founded in 1931. The 1922 Berlin Congress was the last Freud attended. By this time his speech had become seriously impaired by the prosthetic device he needed as a result of a series of operations on his cancerous jaw. He kept abreast of developments through a regular correspondence with his principal followers and via the circular letters and meetings of the secret committee which he continued to attend. The committee continued to function until 1927 by which time institutional developments within the IPA, such as the establishment of the International Training Commission, had addressed concerns about the transmission of psychoanalytic theory and practice. There remained, however, significant differences over the issue of lay analysis, i.e. the acceptance of non-medically qualified candidates for psychoanalytic training. Freud set out his case in favor in 1926 in his The Question of Lay Analysis. He was resolutely opposed by the American societies who expressed concerns over professional standards and the risk of litigation, though child analysts were made exempt. These concerns were also shared by some of his European colleagues. Eventually an agreement was reached allowing society's autonomy in setting criteria for candidature. In 1930 Freud was awarded the Goethe Prize in recognition of his contributions to psychology and to German literary culture. Patients Freud used pseudonyms in his case histories. Some patients known by pseudonyms were Cassili M., Anna von Lieben, Dora, Ida Bauer, 1882-1945, Frau Emmy von N., Fanny Moser, Fräulein Elisabeth von R., Ilona Weiss, Fräulein Katharina, Aurelia Kronik, Fräulein Lucy R., Little Hans, Herbert Graf, 1903-1973, Ratman, Ernst Lanzer, 1878-1914, Enos Fingy, Joshua Wilde, 1878-1920-99 and Wolfman, Sergei Pankjev, 1887-1979. Other famous patients included Prince Pedro Augusto of Brazil, 1866-1934, H.D., 1886-1961, Emma Eckstein, 1865-1924, Gustav Mahler, 1860-1911, with whom Freud had only a single, extended consultation, Princess Marie Bonaparte, Edith Banfield Jackson, 1895-1977, 100 and Albert Hurst, 1887-1974. Cancer. In February 1923, Freud detected a leukoplakia, a benign growth associated with heavy smoking, on his mouth. He initially kept the secret, but in April 1923 he informed Ernest Jones, telling him that the growth had been removed. Freud consulted the dermatologist Maximilian Steiner, who advised him to quit smoking but lied about the growth seriousness, minimizing its importance. Freud later saw Felix Deutsch, who saw that the growth was cancerous, he identified it to Freud using the euphemism of bad leukoplakia instead of the technical diagnosis epithelioma. Deutsch advised Freud to stop smoking and have the growth excised. Freud was treated by Marcus Hajek, a rhinologist whose competence he had previously questioned. Hajek performed an unnecessary cosmetic surgery in his clinic's outpatient department. Freud bled during and after the operation, and may narrowly have escaped death. Freud subsequently saw Deutsch again. Deutsch saw that further surgery would be required, but did not tell Freud he had cancer because he was worried that Freud might wish to commit suicide. Escape from Nazism In January 1933, the Nazi party took control of Germany, and Freud's books were prominent among those they burned and destroyed. Freud remarked to Ernest Jones, what progress we are making. In the Middle Ages they would have burned me. Now, they are content with burning my books. Freud continued to underestimate the growing Nazi threat and remained determined to stay in Vienna, even following the Anschluss of March 13, 1938, in which Nazi Germany annexed Austria, and the outbreaks of violent anti-Semitism that ensued. Jones, the then president of the International Psychoanalytical Association, IPA, flew into Vienna from London via Prague on March 15 determined to get Freud to change his mind and seek exile in Britain. This prospect and the shock of the arrest and interrogation of Anna Freud by the Gestapo finally convinced Freud it was time to leave Austria. Jones left for London the following week with a list provided by Freud of the party of émigrés for whom immigration permits would be required. Back in London, Jones used his personal acquaintance with the Home Secretary, Sir Samuel Hoare, to expedite the granting of permits. There were 17 in all and work permits were provided where relevant. Jones also used his influence in scientific circles, persuading the president of the Royal Society, Sir William Bragg, to write to the Foreign Secretary Lord Halifax, 
requesting to good effect that diplomatic pressure be applied in Berlin and Vienna on Freud's behalf. Freud also had support from American diplomats, notably his ex-patient and American ambassador to France, William Bullitt. Bullitt alerted U.S. President Roosevelt to the increased dangers facing the Freuds, resulting in the American Consul General in Vienna, John Cooper Wiley, arranging regular monitoring of Burgas 19. He also intervened by phone call during the Gestapo interrogation of Anna Freud. The departure from Vienna began in stages throughout April and May 1938. Freud's grandson Ernst Halbierstadt and Freud's son Martin's wife and children left for Paris in April. Freud's sister-in-law, Minna Bernays, left for London on May 5, Martin Freud the following week and Freud's daughter Mathilde and her husband, Robert Holitzker, on May 24. By the end of the month, arrangements for Freud's own departure for London had become stalled, mired in a legally tortuous and financially extortionate process of negotiation with the Nazi authorities. Under regulations imposed on its Jewish population by the new Nazi regime, a commissar was appointed to manage Freud's assets and those of the IPA whose headquarters were nearby Freud's home. Freud was allocated to Dr. Anton Sauerwald, who had studied chemistry at Vienna University under Professor Joseph Herzig, an old friend of Freud's. Sauerwald read Freud's books to further learn about him and became sympathetic towards his situation. Though required to disclose details of all Freud's bank accounts to his superiors and to arrange the destruction of the historic library of books housed in the offices of the IPA, Sauerwald did neither. Instead he removed evidence of Freud's foreign bank accounts to his own safekeeping and arranged the storage of the IPA library in the Austrian National Library where it remained until the end of the war. Though Sauerwald's intervention lessened the financial burden of the flight tax on Freud's declared assets, other substantial charges were levied in relation to the debts of the IPA and the valuable collection of antiquities Freud possessed. Unable to access his own accounts, Freud turned to Princess Marie Bonaparte, the most eminent and wealthy of his French followers, who had traveled to Vienna to offer her support and it was she who made the necessary funds available 108 This allowed Sauerwald to sign the necessary exit visas for Freud, his wife Martha and daughter Anna. They left Vienna on the Orient Express on June 4, accompanied by their housekeeper and a doctor, arriving in Paris the following day where they stayed as guests of Marie Bonaparte before traveling overnight to London arriving at London Victoria Station on June 6. Among those soon to call on Freud to pay their respects were Salvador Dali, Stefan Zweig, Leonard Wolff, Virginia Woolf, and H.G. Wells. Representatives of the Royal Society called with the Society's charter for Freud, who had been elected a foreign member in 1936, to sign himself into membership. Marie Bonaparte arrived towards the end of June to discuss the fate of Freud's four elderly sisters left behind in Vienna. Her subsequent attempts to get them exit visas failed and they would all die in Nazi concentration camps. In early 1939 Sauerwald arrived in London in mysterious circumstances where he met Freud's brother Alexander. He was tried and imprisoned in 1945 by an Austrian court for his activities as a Nazi party official. Responding to a plea from his wife, Anna Freud wrote to confirm that Sauerwald used his office as our appointed commissar in such a manner as to protect my father. Her intervention helped secure his release from jail in 1947. In the Freud's new home, 20, Marais Field Gardens Hampstead, North London, Freud's Vienna consulting room was recreated in faithful detail. He continued to see patients there until the terminal stages of his illness. He also worked on his last books, Moses and Monotheism, published in German in 1938 and in English the following year 112 and the uncompleted An Outline of Psychoanalysis which was published posthumously. Death. By mid-September 1939, Freud's cancer of the jaw was causing him increasingly severe pain and had been declared to be inoperable. The last book he read, Balzac's La Peau de Chagrin, prompted reflections on his own increasing frailty and a few days later he turned to his doctor, friend, and fellow refugee, Max Scher, reminding him that they had previously discussed the terminal stages of his illness, sure, you remember our contract not to leave me in the lurch when the time had come. Now it is nothing but torture and makes no sense. When Schur replied that he had not forgotten, Freud said, I thank you, and then talk it over with Anna, and if she thinks it's right, then make an end of it. Anna Freud wanted to postpone her father's death, but Schur convinced her it was pointless to keep him alive and on 21 and September 22nd administered doses of morphine that resulted in Freud's death around 3 a.m. on September 23, 1939. However, discrepancies in the various accounts Schur gave of his role in Freud's final hours, which have in turn led to inconsistencies between Freud's main biographers, has led to further research and a revised account. 
This proposes that Scher was absent from Freud's deathbed when a third and final dose of morphine was administered by Dr. Josephine Strauss, a colleague of Anna Freud, leading to Freud's death around midnight on September 23, 1939. Three days after his death Freud's body was cremated at the Golders Green Crematorium in North London, with Herod's acting as funeral directors, on the instructions of his son, Ernst 116 funeral orations were given by Ernest Jones and the Austrian author Stefan Zweig. Freud's ashes were later placed in the crematorium's Ernest George Columbarium, see Freud Corner. They rest on a plinth designed by his son, Ernst, in a sealed ancient Greek bell crater painted with Dionysian scenes that Freud had received as a gift from Marie Bonaparte and which he had kept in his study in Vienna for many years. After his wife, Martha, died in 1951, her ashes were also placed in the urn. Ideas Early work Freud began his study of medicine at the University of Vienna in 1873. He took almost nine years to complete his studies, due to his interest in neurophysiological research, specifically investigation of the sexual anatomy of eels and the physiology of the fish nervous system, and because of his interest in studying philosophy with Franz Brentano. He entered private practice in neurology for financial reasons, receiving his MD degree in 1881 at the age of 25. Amongst his principal concerns in the 1880s was the anatomy of the brain, specifically the medulla oblongata. He intervened in the important debates about aphasia with his monograph of 1891, Zur Aphasung der Aphasien, in which he coined the term agnosia and counseled against a two-locationist view of the explanation of neurological deficits. Like his contemporary Eugen Bleuler, he emphasized brain function rather than brain structure. Freud was also an early researcher in the field of cerebral palsy, which was then known as cerebral paralysis. He published several medical papers on the topic, and showed that the disease existed long before other researchers of the period began to notice and study it. He also suggested that William John Little, the man who first identified cerebral palsy, was wrong about lack of oxygen during birth being a cause. Instead, he suggested that complications in birth were only a symptom. Freud hoped that his research would provide a solid scientific basis for his therapeutic technique. The goal of Freudian therapy, or psychoanalysis, was to bring repressed thoughts and feelings into consciousness in order to free the patient from suffering repetitive distorted emotions. Classically, the bringing of unconscious thoughts and feelings to consciousness is brought about by encouraging a patient to talk about dreams and engage in free association, in which patients report their thoughts without reservation and make no attempt to concentrate while doing so. Another important element of psychoanalysis is transference, the process by which patients displace onto their analysts feelings and ideas which derive from previous figures in their lives. Transference was first seen as a regrettable phenomenon that interfered with the recovery of repressed memories and disturbed patients' objectivity, but by 1912, Freud had come to see it as an essential part of the therapeutic process. The origin of Freud's early work with psychoanalysis can be linked to Joseph Brewer. Freud credited Brewer with opening the way to the discovery of the psychoanalytical method by his treatment of the case of Anna O. In November 1880, Brewer was called in to treat a highly intelligent 21-year-old woman, Bertha Pappenheim, for a persistent cough that he diagnosed as hysterical. He found that while nursing her dying father, she had developed a number of transitory symptoms, including visual disorders and paralysis and contract years of limbs, which he also diagnosed as hysterical. Brewer began to see his patient almost every day as the symptoms increased and became more persistent, and observed that she entered states of absence. He found that when, with his encouragement, she told fantasy stories in her evening states of absence her condition improved, and most of her symptoms had disappeared by April 1881. Following the death of her father in that month her condition deteriorated again. Brewer recorded that some of the symptoms eventually remitted spontaneously, and that full recovery was achieved by inducing her to recall events that had precipitated the occurrence of a specific symptom. In the years immediately following Brewer's treatment, Anna O spent three short periods in sanatoria with the diagnosis hysteria with somatic symptoms, and some authors have challenged Brewer's published account of a cure. Richard Skues rejects this interpretation, which he sees as stemming from both Freudian and antipsychoanalytical revisionism, that regards both Brewer's narrative of the case as unreliable and his treatment of Anna O as a failure. Psychologist Frank Soloway contends that Freud's case histories are rampant with censorship, distortions, highly dubious reconstructions, and exaggerated claims. Seduction Theory In the early 1890s, Freud used a form of treatment based on the one that Brewer had described to him, 
modified by what he called his pressure technique and his newly developed analytic technique of interpretation and reconstruction. According to Freud's later accounts of this period, as a result of his use of this procedure most of his patients in the mid-1890s reported early childhood sexual abuse. He believed these stories, which he used as the basis for his seduction theory, but then he came to believe that they were fantasies. He explained these at first as having the function of fending off memories of infantile masturbation, but in later years he wrote that they represented edible fantasies, stemming from innate drives that are sexual and destructive in nature. Another version of events focuses on Freud's proposing that unconscious memories of infantile sexual abuse were at the root of the psychoneuroses in letters to Flyus in October 1895, before he reported that he had actually discovered such abuse among his patients. In the first half of 1896, Freud published three papers, which led to his seduction theory, stating that he had uncovered, in all of his current patients, deeply repressed memories of sexual abuse in early childhood. In these papers, Freud recorded that his patients were not consciously aware of these memories, and must therefore be present as unconscious memories if they were to result in hysterical symptoms or obsessional neurosis. The patients were subjected to considerable pressure to reproduce infantile sexual abuse scenes that Freud was convinced had been repressed into the unconscious. Patients were generally unconvinced that their experiences of Freud's clinical procedure indicated actual sexual abuse. He reported that even after a supposed reproduction of sexual scenes the patients assured him emphatically of their disbelief. As well as his pressure technique, Freud's clinical procedures involved analytic inference and the symbolic interpretation of symptoms to trace back to memories of infantile sexual abuse. His claim of 100% confirmation of his theory only served to reinforce previously expressed reservations from his colleagues about the validity of findings obtained through his suggestive techniques. Freud subsequently showed inconsistency as to whether his seduction theory was still compatible with his later findings. In an addendum to the etiology of hysteria he stated, All this is true the sexual abuse of children, but it must be remembered that at the time I wrote it I had not yet freed myself from my overvaluation of reality and my low valuation of fantasy. Some years later Freud explicitly rejected the claim of his colleague Ferenczi that his patients' reports of sexual molestation were actual memories instead of fantasies, and he tried to dissuade Ferenczi from making his views public. Karen Abelrap concludes in her study I no longer believe, did Freud abandon the seduction theory, Freud marked out and started down a trail of investigation into the nature of the experience of infantile incest and its impact on the human psyche, and then abandoned this direction for the most part. Cocaine as a medical researcher, Freud was an early user and proponent of cocaine as a stimulant as well as analgesic. He believed that cocaine was a cure for many mental and physical problems, and in his 1884 paper on coca he extolled its virtues. Between 1883 and 1887 he wrote several articles recommending medical applications, including its use as an antidepressant. He narrowly missed out on obtaining scientific priority for discovering its anesthetic properties of which he was aware but had mentioned only in passing 140, Karl Kohler, a colleague of Freud's in Vienna, received that distinction in 1884 after reporting to a medical society the ways cocaine could be used in delicate eye surgery. Freud also recommended cocaine as a cure for morphine addiction. He had introduced cocaine to his friend Ernst von Flechelmarksau who had become addicted to morphine taken to relieve years of excruciating nerve pain resulting from an infection acquired after injuring himself while performing an autopsy. His claim that Flachel Marksau was cured of his addiction was premature, though he never acknowledged that he had been at fault. Flachel Marksau developed an acute case of cocaine psychosis, and soon returned to using morphine, dying a few years later still suffering from intolerable pain. The application as an anesthetic turned out to be one of the few safe uses of cocaine, and as reports of addiction and overdose began to filter in from many places in the world, Freud's medical reputation became somewhat tarnished. After the cocaine episode Freud ceased to publicly recommend use of the drug, but continued to take it himself occasionally for depression, migraine and nasal inflammation during the early 1890s, before discontinuing its use in 1896. The Unconscious The concept of the unconscious was central to Freud's account of the mind. Freud believed that while poets and thinkers had long known of the existence of the unconscious, he had ensured that it received scientific recognition in the field of psychology. Freud states explicitly that his concept of the unconscious as he first formulated it was based on the theory of repression. He postulated a cycle in which ideas are repressed, but remain in the mind, removed from consciousness yet operative, then reappear in consciousness under certain circumstances. The postulate was based upon the investigation of cases of hysteria, 
which revealed instances of behavior in patients that could not be explained without reference to ideas or thoughts of which they had no awareness and which analysis revealed were linked to the, real or imagined, repressed sexual scenarios of childhood. In his later reformulations of the concept of repression in his 1915 paper Repression, Standard Edition 14, Freud introduced the distinction in the unconscious between primary repression linked to the universal taboo on incest, innately present originally, and repression, after expulsion, that was a product of an individual's life history, acquired in the course of the ego's development, 